Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Welcome to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your hosts, Mayu and just Mayu today. Austin is not going to be joining us for the preamble. So it's just going to be me. We've been trying to get back on a schedule of recording our podcast episodes. Sometimes we run out of episodes. Sometimes we just can't get together to record a preamble like we did this week. So it's just going to be me, but I thought I would spend some time talking about the overall market. I know it's something that we've been talking about quite a bit. Just if you've listened to the previous episodes, it's just talking about, you know, how there's quite a few deals everywhere, right? But also acknowledging the overall economic uncertainty that the North American and Western countries are currently facing right now. That being said, I did want to talk a little bit about the off market. So there's been a significant drop in demand for wholesale deals. So if anyone that's looking to get into the market has struggled previously in buying wholesale deals right now, now is definitely a good time to start building relationships with wholesalers. It's something I've been doing, um, talking directly with wholesalers, letting them know exactly what I'm looking for, what my property criteria is, and trying to see what they have or what they might have in the pipeline to see if we can just negotiate something directly as well, right? But also the reason that the wholesale deals just don't have a lot of buyers is because there's a lot of on-market deals as well, right? So there's more buyers that really are focusing on market than there are in the wholesale right now. But, you know, if you guys are looking, definitely go out there, build a relationship with wholesalers. Also, you know, just acknowledging what's going on in the current market right now, we hit 8.1% in Canada. So let's be real, like ultimately the BOC will be increasing interest rates again in September. If I had to bet, that's definitely what I would bet on. Just being cognizant of that and understanding of that is really the key here. So right now we're at 4.7% on primes. Um, so realistically, that'll probably go up to 5.2, maybe even 5.5-ish kind of ballpark area. We don't really know, right? But make sure you're factoring that into your numbers when you're doing your deal analysis. Interestingly, there's also been a lot of kind of focus in the media and the news on the BOC just focusing on a soft landing, right? So I could be wrong. I don't necessarily see aggressive rate hikes continuing forever, but it's important to understand the correlation between inflation, interest rates, currencies, and a couple of different things, right? So we'll talk about talking about currency, like, you know, Canada as a country, we ultimately need to protect our currency as well. And as a result, we can never really be too far off from the U.S., right? Which is why a lot of investors focus on U.S. inflationary trends, which then determines what the U.S. Fed will do, which is also one of the criteria that I'm sure the Canadian BOC is also focusing on as well, right? So the U.S. inflation rate is definitely pretty up there as well. Um, now, the other interesting thing to, to kind of keep in mind is that interest rates are a lagged measure, right? Meaning like we have the inflation first and inflation is already a lagged indicator because when they say we had 8.1% inflation, they're talking about the last couple of months. So really it's already hit our wallets, right? And then they increase interest rates and you won't likely see the impact of the increase in interest rates for a couple months as well, right? So just kind of understanding how everything overall fits together. I'm still betting obviously on like probably bet on a 75 basis points increase given the 8% inflation that we recently had. What we're talking about so far is really just kind of news and headlines and things that are widely out there, right? What I want to encourage you guys to do is, you know, pay attention to what the average individual around you is saying. So a lot of people were complaining about gas prices for the past few months. That's really just old news, right? But what I'm starting to hear now is people complaining about the cost of, you know, going out to eat, right? So someone actually said to me the other day that they were cutting back on their date nights because meals at restaurants were almost double what they were pre-COVID. Right. So your earliest indicator will always be what you observe in the spending habits of those around you. So pay attention to that. Also remember what goes up usually comes down. The same logic that applied to the housing market can really be taken to apply to interest rates and the economies and inflation and a couple of different kind of 
metrics out there as well, right? So let's talk about what we're doing right now. Uh, myself and Austin had a fourplex under contract, great area in a decent sized city. Three out of four of the units were vacant. We purchased it with the presumption of it basically being a turnkey property with a three-week conditional period. So pretty happy with how we negotiated that one. We did the inspection. It wasn't as turnkey as we thought, right? So there's some obvious repairs that need to happen. Furnace, water tank, two of the units were missing baseboard heaters, two of the units are mid-renovation, stuff like that. So ultimately, we're going to go back to the seller. We're going to try and negotiate to make sure that a lot of the work gets done. And if it doesn't, we might just be pulling out because right now, overall approach has just been to minimize CapEx. Talking about, I guess, how our investing strategy has changed, the game of the past was recycle your capital through as many projects as you can and as fast as possible, right? But in the current environment, there's no real guarantee on what future after repair value will be, right? So really the focus now is on accumulating as many assets as possible at the compressed valuations that are out there today and to exit when the market recovers, right? So it's a little bit of a different investing strategy. And that's kind of a good entryway into our guest for today's podcast. So our podcast guest today is Brandon and Carolina from Medallo Properties. They started investing in 2019 where they bought their first Burr project out in Hamilton. And since then, they've grown their portfolio to about 26 units. Now, the interesting part about today's podcast episode is that we've talked about how their investing strategy and the investing markets that they've selected has changed since 2019, kind of reactive to what the market trends are, right? So in any market condition, you can constantly be investing, but how you invest and what your approach to investing is, is what will kind of constantly be changing. So definitely a great episode, very timely, very relevant to what's going on in the market today. So make sure you tune in. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the episode, make sure you comment and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again. Talk soon. We are joined with our very special guests. It's been a while since we had another dynamic duo on the podcast, but we have Brandon and Caro. How's it going, guys? Awesome. Thanks for having us. For sure, guys. So obviously, we know each other quite well at this point, but for our guests that might not know you guys, why don't you give everyone a quick rundown of yourselves and how you guys got started in real estate? I'm not sure if the journey was together or separate, but yeah, just curious to hear. <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, as you mentioned, we're Brandon and Caro. Uh, we're from Medallo Properties. We'd stay with the strategy in, in 2019 because in, in 2015, we, we did have a condo. Uh, we had some money. We wanted to make sure that it was being put in a safe place. Everybody talks about real estate being that, that safe vehicle. So uh, we went out and, and we got a condo, but we weren't making the right decisions. We were actually uh, losing money every month with condo fees and, and things like that and not really making the right projections on initially when we made the buy. So from there... We ended up flipping that that condo to a uh, single family home, and we were actually in a big debate at that time as to whether what we should do. I wanted to invest. I really believed in uh, buy where you can rent and then live wherever you want. And Carol believed in that dream of having your your beautiful family home as soon as possible and, and living and growing in it for 20, 30 years. And so we we had a bit of a compromise. We moved out of Toronto and, and moved into Oakville. But eventually, I was able to convince her to let's invest our money in real estate. Let's take what we what we do have and what we're sitting on and invest it. So we we jumped into a single family home in Hamilton at about 2019, and we really loved the results that we saw. So we we sold our house in Oakville. We sold our car. We really just cashed out, tried to leverage as much of free capital that we had at that point, and uh, and we started house hacking in 2020. And so we we found ourselves in Burlington, a beautiful neighborhood pool in the backyard and uh, and our mortgage being really, really low, basically covering most of the cost that, that was associated to that. And so from that, we had lots of capital. We have lots of borrowing capacity from, from both our jobs. And 
we were wondering how can we really take advantage of, of the opportunities that, that are out there for us. And so in 2021 is when we really started investing ourselves in our education. And we grew our portfolio to be about uh, close to over 30 units. And they're, they're all cash flowing. And uh, we're just excited to share our journey with, with everybody else. So thanks again for having us. That's awesome, though. That, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I love hearing stories where people get into the market beforehand, but never think of using their primary residence as an asset. Now, one of the questions I have is, is that why did you decide to kind of trade off your Oakville house and, um, and house hack? Like, what was that decision making process like? Was both people on board? Because uh, I know with my girlfriend, when I had this conversation, she's definitely not on board to, to rent the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was it was a two year conversation, maybe. Yeah, I think what finally triggered it was um, from a personal standpoint, because Brandon was already sold on this even before we bought the house. From a personal standpoint, I had a situation at work where essentially I, I didn't get a promotion that I thought I deserved at the time. And I just felt really powerless with regards to my ability to control my financial future. And at that point, we were paying a lot of mortgage on a monthly basis. And I said, is it really going to take me 30 years basically at somebody else's mercy for me to get to where I want to get to? And at that point, am I going to have a life to live or am I just going to be wishing that I did something sooner? And something was triggered in my mind at that point. We also had a personal situation where my grandma felt really ill and we had to pay like a lot of medical bills because she, she's not from Canada. She was visiting, yeah. She was visiting. She was not going to cover her health insurance. And that situation basically took my parents, like, their entire savings down the drain, and we just realized how vulnerable we were. So all those things put together, I'm an accountant, so I'm very reconverted. I realized that I was actually living a really risky lifestyle, and as a single child, I wasn't going to be able to support my parents if they were to get into a situation where they had a medical need or anything like that from a financial standpoint. So... I said, okay, well, we got to give it our all now. I can't be sitting on a million-dollar property during these times. Let's actually invest it. Let's put it to work. We've already done it once, and it was successful. Let's do it with a really good strategy going forward. Yeah. I, I'm also a bit of a dreamer and a visionary, so it took me a while to realize what language I need to speak to Carolyn, and she's very analytical, numbers-driven. And so for me to say, it's amazing. We have, you know, we're going to be able to do this and that and live the life we want and, and travel and whatever it is that we were talking about. That's not how I needed to communicate with her. I needed to really just drill down into the numbers and show her analytically, what can this do for us? And that's also another driving factor that I think helped change your mind there. So I know Austin's super fascinated by, you know, the renting out and, and house hacking approach, but you guys said you started off investing in 2019, or sorry, I think you bought your, your condo, but then you bought your next property in 2017, 18. And that would have kind of been uh, when they brought in the foreign buyers tax and the stress test at the same time. So we would have had a little bit of a market dip there. And then it sounds like you went a little bit more aggressive investing in 2019. I'm sure you guys kind of ended up in some interesting situations in 2020. So I'm just kind of curious about the different market cycles you guys were dealing with at that time and what your investment strategy was and how it's changed so far. For sure. So I would definitely say we went through a lot of these cycles, the ups and down in, in a very short period of time. And, you know, when we first started, we didn't really necessarily have the education, but we knew when we were looking at a good deal. So when we actually decided to buy our principal residency, 
we actually saw that the price dropped like this right around the 2018 time, 100K. And this was a property like bungalow in yeah. prime Oakville, like South Oakville. So we knew right away that we had a good opportunity in our hands. Mind you, we weren't look, necessarily looking at it as an investment. But then when we decided to sell in Oakville, it was right around when COVID hit as well. So we were terrified. We thought we weren't going to be able to sell. And then in hindsight, we wish we actually would have kept the asset because somebody else went and just sold it for 400K more just a year later, right? Yeah. So it's one of those that got away, but we, we still ended up all right. We were able to invest in other stuff in the meantime. Now, in 2019, it ended up being a very opportunistic buy because... Essentially, it was something that was mismarketed. Right when we bought it, it was November 2019. This person uh, was an old folk and he had to go to an old folks home and he got basically his granddaughter to list it. But they were dealing with some health issues and stuff. So the property wasn't correctly advertised or anything like that. So we went to see it. It was actually beautifully maintained. And we thought, wow, there's a lot of potential here and we could actually get in without having a bidding war. Mind you, there wasn't crazy bidding wars exactly when we bought this property. Maybe but you were seeing maybe one or two offers on properties, but nothing crazy like we saw in the last uh, mm -hmm. six months or so. And uh, yeah, basically we got that. And then we were able to refinance all of our money out. And we're like, holy crap, how can we do this again? And then from there, we just decided if we want to really be strategic because the market then started going up like crazy, we wanted to make sure that we had the right education and support systems to have the, the right decisions in place that can help us be successful. So in 2019, when you guys first got started, were you guys doing conversions or was it a different strategy, which then evolved into conversions? Yeah, we, we jumped right into a, a duplex conversion. That's, that's what we had our eye on. Uh, you know, talking to our agents, talking to brokers as we were, we were thinking about, we didn't know what a power team was, but we were trying to educate ourselves from other people that have maybe been doing this or helping their clients do this as well. And so we targeted Hamilton for that reason. We targeted the Burr method and then specifically a duplex conversion is, is how we started. Gotcha. So it is a pretty rapid rate of growth. This is a part that even myself, Austin, a lot of us, like it's usually pretty rapid and then we plateau at a point and then we'll kind of scale up again whenever we're ready to. Right. But I'm curious, like for you guys, like what do you attribute the rapid rate of growth? Cause you're now sitting at just North of 25 units, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah in about two and a half years or something like that. Right. So, so two or three years, whichever way you look at it, that's definitely pretty rapid. Right. So, so what do you guys attribute that to um, what were the pain points as well? Because scaling that fast usually has pain. So for sure, I would say the first thing that we focused on was on delivering value. And I know this sounds really corny, but that really was our philosophy from the get go. And we were able to deliver that from our JV partners to our contractors, to our brokers. And that created an amazing return for us. Like we had people bringing us off market deals. We had people with a lot of money that said, I want to work with you because I know you care. And I know that you're looking to make this happen. And so we were able to leverage other people's money very successfully. We also had, again, a lot of capital of our own because we sold all of our not high yielding assets, like our cars. And like I said, our, our property. So that helped a ton and it helped us build credibility as well. As well, like my background in, in accounting helped from a number standpoint to present the opportunities to other people. But yeah, if I were to narrow it down to one thing, it was really focused on delivering value and finding the right opportunities there. Now, we also focused on creating systems. So from a, if anybody's read the money people deal, that, that really is our, our bread and butter and what we focus all our decisions on. So when it comes down to money, we made sure that we had all the steps in place to raise the money and to continuously actively work that uh, side of the business. Business, as well as the deals, we created this deals funnel where we're not only 
looking for deals, but we're a magnet to deals as well. And so that was basically a double return on that as well as the people, right? So we hired help from the get-go on things that helped us get our story out there, like a social media person. We hired a coach. We hired an assistant very early on because we wanted to build a business that we could grow into. We didn't want to wait to grow to get into the business. And so our growth was very supported from the get-go. Last thing I'd say is, you know, we, we, we also have the benefit of working together. We're, we're, we're two people and we're, we're both very driven. It's not like one of us is, is a little bit more passive or relaxed than the other. Uh, if there's something that needs to get done, we're both either want to do it or see, you know, assign it to, to somebody first. So effective time management, things like creating org charts. Like we really looked at this as building a business. Even when we started our, our coaching program, there's typically two types of investors, ones that want to pick up one or two properties every year and, and they love their job and they want to do that. And others that are looking to be a little bit more aggressive and, and replace income because they don't want to work forever. And we were in the latter. We wanted to make sure that we take the first three months and build the right foundation so that we're growing the right way. If there are cracks, they're not going to break us in the future. So that's what we focused on a lot. And, and the org chart, I think, really helped us. We, we know our strengths. We know what our roles are. And we're not duplicating work. And we're able to divide and conquer that way. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask next, actually. Like, how are you guys dividing the work? Because as a couple, it doesn't make sense for you guys to do the same thing. Because obviously, that would lead to stepping on each other's toes, right? So like, obviously, there's a clear role and responsibility differentiation. Do you guys have like an integrator, or like with a lot of these bigger businesses, there's integrators who are like the execution and there's a visionary, someone who gets ahead of themselves to have kind of ideas and the integrator kind of pulls the visionary back. Like, do you kind of have those, those roles in your business? Oh, we know exactly who we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm definitely the integrator of the business. That's what I do for work. Like I manage like eight to 10 clients at a time and eight to different projects at a time. So this is my bread and butter. And Brandon, like we said, from the get-go, he was trying to sell me on all these visions that he had. We just have to bridge the gap. So from there, we just basically created a chart and said, okay, if we want this business to be successful, what are the different roles and responsibilities that we would need to have, right? So we talked about from a deals perspective, okay, who's finding the deals, who's analyzing the deals, who's putting in offers, right? And after we broke down the responsibilities, we said, okay, well, who's best suited for that and who enjoys it, right? I personally hate dealing with tenants because I'm very emotional, but Brandon's great at it. So there's no questions asked even as to who's going to be answering the message. And we don't waste time trying to decide that on the day to day. We already knew from the get go who was going to be working on what. It seems like you guys have a lot of this stuff figured out. I'm just curious. So like, I think um, we talked about what helped you guys scale up. But were there issues along the way? Like what came first, really the organizational issues, the capital, there's usually some sort of an issue. So I'm just curious, what kind of issue did you guys encounter first? And how did you guys deal with that one? There's definitely been a lot of issues that I, I guess every project brings on. I would say the first thing that we started noticing was the emotional drain and the lack of time that we had for each other when we were dealing with tenants. And we were dealing with really silly things, right? Like um, something broke. Okay, now you got to call the electrician, but then you got to coordinate with this other person. And oh my gosh, licenses didn't get delivered. So call so-and-so. And we were just wasting so much time doing these things. And we thought the return on our time is not worth it. Um, and the emotional drain of it was exhausting. So we had to make a decision as to do we want to hire a property manager or are we at the point where we would benefit from actually having our own assistant that can do a little bit more than just property managed for us. And 
basically we went back to the org chart and we said we can support this even if you know part of our refi funds and, and our cash flow is used towards this it's really going to help us scale in the long run so i would say that that would be the first thing that we started encountering when we made the decision to to get some help at what point did you guys start incorporating joint venture partners uh in, in your journey so that you guys obviously sold off a ton of your assets had cash to work off of but um, any investors know eventually as you scale, you run into cash flow issues is just the reality of it. At what points did you start reaching out to JV partners? Are there people in your network through social media? Like who are these people as well? Yeah. So the first deal that we actually did, we did with a JV partner. We did with a family member. We worked the numbers on what the ideal deal for them would be. And then while they were on vacation, we found them that exact deal. And we said, hey, you said that this would work. Let's do this. First, we made a PowerPoint presentation first. Yes, we did. <laughs> For your family member? That's so funny. Now we have like packages <laughs> and stuff. But at that point, we put together a PowerPoint presentation and we're like, let's do this the right way. We want to earn their credibility, right? Because we've never done this before. We have their trust. They're their family members. They trust that we're doing our research. We want to show them credibility as well. Yeah. So we started with that and then we used a lot of our own capital and then basically their money kept coming back on refinances. So we were able to reuse a lot of that. But a lot of it has been friends and family that we've known basically our whole lives. We mm -hmm. started with just a list of people that we thought would be interested and in, would have the, the capital to invest in stuff like this. And we just started having conversations with those people. And then from there, sharing our story on social media, we started getting leads and, and we start building those relationships as well. For us, it's very key to work with people that we like um, and that like us as well. We don't want to do business with anybody that doesn't want to do business with us. So, mm -hmm. But you both know, right? If, if you provide a great experience and, and a great return that you've, you've shown that you can do in the past, these people are going to want to repeat investing with you. So you don't need to find 100 new people to, that will want to invest with you. You just have to provide a great experience for that maybe 10 to 12 people that will continue to with you over time. 100%. And I think that's how uh, both Mayu and I have been getting properties with joint ventures. A lot of them are repeat right. uh, JVs. I've done a JV with my mom before. I'd never do that again. <laughs> um, but this wasn't your parents, right? Or, or was it? The we first had, we time, had used yeah, her parents. Yeah, yeah. Was that like a smooth experience or was there a lot? Man, all the dinner table conversations are about it. I was like, I can't do this. Yeah, you know what it is? There's, <laughs> there's always going to be things in real estate that don't go according to plan. Like, yeah, we want oh, yeah. to negotiate vacancy <laughs> on four units, but we only got like three, right? And it's like, well, you said four, right? So sometimes those conversations, when it's too close to home, it just starts to get uh, too repetitive, right? And I think one thing that we kind of just skated over was like the PowerPoint presentation, um, a lot of the backend work and the professionalism of, of carrying yourself through with that. Like, I think a lot of people over the last like one or two years where it was just super easy to get money anywhere, they just stopped doing all that stuff, right? So I still remember putting together like deal sheets, like super quick during like a two-day conditional period a million meetings trying to like secure a partner and like trying to like get something locked up. Right. So um, I think that kind of hard work is, is kind of skated over a little bit in today's environment, but I'm curious, you know, if you guys want to share one of the deals that you guys are either, either recently working on or that you've already seen through to completion, like I'd be curious what kind of numbers you guys are seeing out in uh, uh, the Hamilton, well in Niagara kind of region. Yeah, for sure. So we just locked up um, actually a property under contract in the Niagara region for $430,000, potential rent of $3,000 a month. And the actual market value is 550. So we would be able to refinance a lot of our money out and still have a decent amount of cash flow. Um, right now, obviously our strategy is a bit different than it was in 2019. So our, our biggest thing is, is getting into projects that give us a good return on our money. 
and where the capital is not tied up. So I'm not so hung up on getting a thousand dollars a month in cash flow. I'm more concerned with getting my money in and out quickly, even if I'm only making you know five hundred dollars of cash flow a month, because I know that that number will, will grow with time as interest rates come down and as mortgage paydowns happen, right? I believe this property also is turnkey. So that's exactly it. I think mm. that I mentioned that. So we're not putting any renovation dollars into this as well, which is why the numbers work out the, the way that, that they so do. So 430 and it's worth 550. Is that uh, like what type of property is that? It's a duplex. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. How did you get a, a hold of that deal? Was that on the MLS? Yeah, it was actually on the MLS. It was sitting there for a really long time. Um, they had it at 550, then it went to 499, then it went to 475. And we just put in an offer for 400K and they settled at 430 because it was right exactly when the interest rate hit. It was yesterday. Yeah. Was yesterday. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's super interesting. In my mind. <laughs> I think that was a great example, actually, because I think so many people discredit this like exact investment strategy that I've done, Austin's done, you guys are doing right now, right? Where the hardest part is honestly just convincing the appraiser that we just bought a good deal, right? Like this is not market value. We just bought it and it's a really good deal. Now in six months, it's worth what the actual market value is and like do proper work, right? When a lot of them, if there's pictures available online, they get kind of skeptical as to like how you've increased the value so much, right? Uh, But it's a great strategy because return on time is freaking amazing right Um, and super hands off and you renovations often get very cash intensive so you can then use that cash to go buy something else so is that is that a deal that you guys are joint venturing and then i guess what's the plan for it if it's turnkey you're just kind of buying it renting out and waiting or yeah so our philosophy with any deal that we get is if we can get a jv partner to benefit from it then we assign it to them but we would never put under contract something that we don't think has value that would we would even close on ourselves so this one actually closes October 12. We have a ton of time to find somebody to, to partner with. But if we don't, then we have the capital. And again, we can just refinance it out um, in six months and get our capital out, essentially. Well, that's uh, me and Austin have kind of very similar numbers on another property that we're doing right now where it's closing is like at, in October. And um, yeah, right now it's a market, I guess, to to kind of get those kind of super long delayed closings, conditional periods and kind of whatever kind of terms you want. So. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be some good opportunities uh, coming forward. And there are a couple of good opportunities already on the market. You just got to find those opportunities out like you guys did right there. Just out of curiosity now. So the market, obviously, since you're speaking on it, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, uh, interest rate hikes, probably a couple more before the end of the year. How is this impacting your investment strategy going forward? And has it impacted your current portfolio? Great questions, both of them. So number one, we were originally really focused on creating the value in the property. So we were okay finding distressed properties because that was the way to find the best deals. There wasn't a ton of turnkey stuff selling at a discount on the market. So originally we were looking to, we were okay parking our money for for six months while stuff got renovated four to six months. Now it's the complete opposite where we are looking for for those opportunities that are turnkey because we don't want to lock our capital in for for four to six months because there's going to be a lot more opportunity that comes up in that time. That combined with the fact that rental costs are so unpredictable right now, I I think there's just a lot more risk there. Uh, Not to say that anybody that is doing a big rental can't do well. It's just our preference would be not to tie up our time and our capital on, on big projects right now. So that's how our strategy has changed. Has our portfolio uh, been impacted? So that's an interesting one. We were actually in the middle of a flip right before the May, 
I guess, call it market dip. And originally we forecasted that we were going to sell this property for 1.2. And that's what we made our projections on. But then the market went crazy. And so we thought we were going to get, you know, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5. And we were so excited. And literally a week before we listed ours, a house exactly like ours within two kilometers sold for 1.512 to be exact. And we're like, oh, we're going to at least hit 1.4. The highest number we got was basically one three and it, it was a tough sell, right? So I, I would say we were impacted. We still did all right, but it was tough mindset adjustment because we're like, well, do we hold it off? Maybe we're going to get better. Thank goodness we didn't because it went really south from there. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. just going to say that, right? We, we, we still made more than what we projected. And, and I know Carol alluded to this earlier, the psychology of an investor, right? You're going to ride the waves when they're nice and high and that's going to feel awesome. But when they're low, you still got to ride the tide until the waves pick you up again, right? So that's exactly the, the life of an investor. And so right now we, we know that tides are low. And so let's let's ride it out with an intelligent approach. Let's not get ourselves locked into something that, that might knock us off our surfboard and mm-hmm. you know, wait until the tide comes back up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we actually didn't buy any properties like January to March because the numbers were really not making sense. We like put our- offers in yeah. for numbers that made sense for us. But yeah. And so our projections from December are still pretty much in line with what's happening now. There was just a really big bleep, right? So we never really use the January to March numbers as projections. So we haven't really seen it come back like any uh, ARVs lower than what we projected initially in projects that we got into between September and December. Yeah, that's very smart. Anyone who's using February, March, or January now as an ARV is, is out their mind. Cause I like, I think it'll at least take a few years for it to ever touch those sort of peaks again. So you mentioned that you like to be in and out of properties quickly. My, you and I are, um, we're no stranger to that as well. That's kind of our entire MO. But one thing that we're trying to wrap our heads around is, is that similar to you guys, we want to buy more turnkey. Now we don't want to get into a ton of rentals and have our money potentially tied in are you guys buying for cash flow uncomfortable leaving your money in these turnkey properties? So like, for example, that deal you mentioned, you bought it in the 400s worth 500. Doesn't necessarily mean it'll appraise in 500s in three or six months, right? And that's kind of like the struggle Mayu and I have, and we've slowly accepted, okay, we're going to have to leave our money here for a year or two years, but it just needs to cash flow particularly well. Is that kind of your thought process as well? And, and if not, uh, I'd be curious to hear what kind of logic you guys are, are, are thinking through. Yeah, for me, it's not so much the minimum amount of cash flow a month, but rather the return on uh, like cash on cash return, right? If I'm seeing cash on cash return or or 10% or higher, then it doesn't matter if it's $300 a month in cash flow. And I mean, when I say 10% cash on cash return, I'm using at least 5% interest rate predictions here. So if I can still make 10% cash on cash return, leaving my money into the deal at 5%, then I know it's a good deal. It's kind of a psychology aspect of investing right now because it's impossible to really assess what the bottom out of the market is going to be. And if you're trying to project making money at 6%, 8%, or like with a 20% additional market drop, then we miss out, right? There's not going to be anybody that's ready to sell at those kinds of prices. So we came up with the numbers that made sense for us and things like just criteria that made sense for us. Like we said, uh, return on our money and amount of capital required. Am I okay leaving 20, 30 grand in a deal? Yeah, I don't, I don't care so much. Am I okay leaving 150? Mm, 
not so much, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's something that every investor essentially needs to figure out for themselves, right? It's like, what's your minimum return that you're required to have? And like the, the guys that I coach, for example, I just tell them like, write down your minimum criteria, put it on the board, stare at it every single day and like, don't budge from it. If the yeah. deal works at those minimum criteria, make the offer if it doesn't move on, right? And it should be that simple and that kind of fast that I think everyone should um, yeah. kind of establish for themselves. So guys, I think that was great. I love hearing kind of investor backstories, but I think also it's just more so hearing your mindset and how you guys are looking at deals and how you guys are making offers in today's market that I thought was pretty cool. So usually at this point in the podcast, we like to ask our guests two questions. Um, the first question is, where do you see yourself five years from now? Great question, Mayu. In, in five years, we plan to be 100% financially independent. And at the same time, we want to dedicate the time that we do have, not only to obviously doing what we want to do with our families and in our free time, but uh, delivering value and educating people, helping them secure their financial futures as well. One way that we're doing that already is, is through coaching. Uh, so giving back to the community that way. And another we have an idea of is potentially virtual CEOs, helping people get their business together, get the right foundations and the blocks in place so that they can almost like a bird repeat and continue to sort themselves. That's actually pretty cool. That's definitely a unique, uh, unique idea that I haven't heard a lot of real estate investors kind of talking about. So that's great. And then I guess for newer investors that are maybe just getting started or maybe they're on property number two or three in today's market, like what do you perceive as being the biggest risk? I guess two things, right? We talk about being too conservative or just having too many options out there, right? Like you're seeing all these dips in crypto in the stock market and, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, where do I put my money? And for me, I mean, easiest answer is real estate simply because what other asset class can you put your money into at 20% of its value, but still get 100% of its return? Return being cash flow, return being mortgage pay down, return being appreciation. It's nuts, right? So going back to the conservative point, if you're being too conservative in your numbers, too scared, and you're running things at 10% interest rates, where that's not necessarily where we're going to end up, you're not going to pull the trigger on anything. And you're just going to kick yourself in the butt for not taking action. So I think that's the biggest risk right now, just getting over that psychology. A lot of people are trying to time the bottom out of the market, and there's just no way of doing that. We've gotten into deals and we could the market go down lower? Probably. Could it go up higher in six months? Maybe. Right. So what are we using as our guideline to to take action and what are we sticking to? I would say that's the biggest risk. And also a lot of people are getting shiny object syndrome. So to diversify, they're getting into Airbnb without asking too many questions. They're coming up with too many plans and they're not necessarily de-risking too much by, I guess, diversifying their strategy. And I see a lot of cities coming out with different um I guess licensing policies and licenses and in, uh, in place, and some cities even stop licensing for Airbnb. And I just see that as a bit of a risk if you're not educated and you don't have a diversification plan or a support network that can help you through these times. Those are probably the biggest risks that I would highlight there. That was actually a pretty good answer, and I agree, especially with a lot of a lot of part a lot of people moving to Airbnb to either make them make the numbers work because it doesn't work in a normal strategy or just because they don't want to deal with tenants, but ultimately as landlords, unfortunately we have to deal with tenants in one form or another. So that's great guys. Uh, I think that was a great episode, Brandon, Carolina. If anyone wants to get in touch with you guys, follow your journey, um, reach out, how would they get in touch with you guys? Yeah. You can follow us on Instagram at Medallo properties. You can uh, send us a DM, book a call with us there. And, and to the two of you, I just want to say thank you. You guys provide a lot of value to, to the community. I've loved running into you both at, at some networking events. Hope to see you soon. And just just keep killing it. Keep raising the bar and helping everybody as, as you guys keep doing that. So thanks again. 
Really appreciate that, man. If you guys enjoyed this podcast episode, listening to it, make sure to leave a five-star review, do whatever you can to support the podcast. It helps bring rise more in light with other audience members who might need to listen to these episodes as well. And it might help them on their journey to building wealth. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.